Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would use this time for those of us who have been Christians for a long time to rekindle a love for you, to untangle us from an attachment to money and things and attach our hearts to you. Lord, for those of us who are looking in from the outside, still investigating what it means to be a Christian, if we can even become a Christian, if we can believe, Father, help us to take one step closer to you. Lord, I pray that through this sermon, through this liturgy, through the songs that we're singing about giving up of our our lives for you and for others, I pray that you would set us free, that you would let us find true joy, true fulfillment in giving ourselves away, in giving up what we have for your kingdom, for your gospel, and for the good of people everywhere. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, A behavioral study was published in the journal Science Magazine uh, recently, and it was entitled The Psychological Consequences of Money. And what it found is that folks that have money on their minds are less helpful, less considerate, and less willing to ask for help and to engage in helping other people. It has this little interesting line. It says, money may not be the root of all evil, but it might be the root of some indifference. It does make you perhaps more indifferent to the needs of other people. Now, subjects were asked in this study to give help by the experimenter, the person sitting across the table doing the experiment. They were, they were asked for help from, from other people in the test, kind of uh, those that were just put there uh, and by plants, and then also by passers-by who would walk by them on the street or on the, the uh, sidewalk at lunch break, and they would spill a big pile of pencils in front of them, and then they would count how many these people picked up. Uh, or they would ask them for a donation to the university student fund or something like that. And they, the result was that the people that were money-primed, and we don't have time to go into how they set that up, but the people that had their minds set on money by these conditions of the test uh, spent less time helping the peer, spent less time filling out data for the test uh, Uh, practitioner and picked up fewer pencils and donated less money to uh, the student fund than their neutral counterparts. Now, what's interesting is that the the author of this study says, we didn't find animosity. It was more of a sense of social cluelessness. We don't have any indication that they were being rude to these people. It's just that they weren't mindful of their needs. It wasn't that they intended to be selfish or mean. They just didn't see that they had a role in the other person's life. One psychologist they interviewed uh, for the article that I read lives in New York City, and she's dealing with people that are attached to money, that are finding their meaning in money, that are driven by the acquisition of money. And she says, basically, in her studies and in her work with clients through the years in New York City, that the acquisition of wealth for the wrong reasons, is virtually a prescription for unhappiness. She says, so much of the literature says that there is an inverse relationship between subjective well-being and materialism, but it only holds true when the motives for acquiring that wealth have to do with the desire to hoard, amass, and use money for power and control rather than a vehicle for generosity. Do you see what she's saying She's saying that it's not that you have money that has an inverse relationship with happiness. It's that why you want it. 
why you're seeking to amass it, why you want to acquire it, that that's the X factor. That when you seek money or any resource in order to have a sense of control over your life, it makes you unhappy. It twists you. It controls you, as a matter of fact. Now, this passage, two things come up. We're going to look at an example and a test. The example of the Macedonians, how and why and what motivated them to give, and then the test that he lays down for the Corinthian church. So first of all, the example. A little background here. The Jerusalem church, that they were gathering money from the Macedonians and from the Corinthian church in order to send to Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church was a discriminated and oppressed church, and therefore they were in poverty. Therefore they're poor. Most oppressed people are poor. In the Roman Empire, Christianity was tolerated because it was seen generally as a subset of Judaism. But in Jerusalem, they saw Christianity as a splinter group, as deviant, as an aberrant religion. They didn't want any part of it because the Christians were claiming that we are the true conclusion of Judaism. And the Jews were saying, no, 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 you're not. And so they oppressed them in Jerusalem. And so what Paul would do is he went around spreading the gospel, planting churches around the the Greek world, around the Gentile world. He would set up special offerings and say, remember your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. They're dirt poor. They're persecuted. And though you have only a little bit more, even though your resources are meager, I want you to give to support, to assuage the poverty of this church. He did this over and over. And one of the churches that took him up on that, that offer said the Macedonians, which was a church in Greece, gave with unbelievable charity and generosity, which is amazing because they were also dirt poor. Chris Rock has this funny line that he talks about growing up in utter abject poverty, and he said that we were so poor that when we went to bed at night, Daddy would turn off the clocks <laughs> to save power, I guess. This was the situation in Macedonia. And yet, their response to Paul's invitation was not derived from a calculation of their material poverty, but it was derived from a recognition of their spiritual abundance, of their spiritual wealth. That's how they responded. Not looking at saying, well, look, we're poor too, Paul. Why are you leaning on us? Why do we want to support that Jewish church way over there, people that we don't even know? That was not the calculation at all. Their calculation was, I am rich in Jesus. I, am a, I have abundance in the gospel, so of course I'll give. Tell me where to write the check. Now he's saying to the Corinthian church, I hope you're ready because I'm coming to you next. I got the money from the Macedonians, now it's your turn, so I hope you're ready. He says, look, you excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, and in love. You're a church that is alive with the gospel. When you drive around the south, you see all these funny church signs. And there's one in Georgia that said, a church alive is worth a drive. That's the way they think about church in the south. This is a a church that is alive with the gospel. The Corinthian church had tremendous diversity and even a great deal of conflict within the church. They were There were committed believers, committed Christians, and yet sitting next to them on the pew were people investigating. People were skeptical, people that were wondering, what is this new thing happening? So it was a diverse church. 
They also had monumental conflicts about what can happen in worship. Who can say what? Who can lead worship? They had conflicts over a number of things and scandalous issues of sin. And yet, yet, and this is why Paul was wanted to write and, and commend the Corinthian church, because despite all of that, they'd never lost sight of their larger goal. They were able to live together and work together because the gospel was at work. The gospel was taking root in their lives. And so, therefore, when conflict came up, when things happened in the church that would be divisive in other places, they said, no, we believe the gospel. What, do, what, com, what brings us together is much more important than what is dividing us. So Paul genuinely loved this church, and he used them as an example for other churches. But he's definitely here buttering them up a little bit. In fact, he's maybe even daring them. He says, you have all these gifts. He itemizes all of these things that the Corinthian church are known for. It's not just things that they happen to have. People know that they have it. It's, it's so evident in their life. He says, you have all these gifts, but how are you doing on this one? Giving. I'm going to compare you to the Macedonian church. You have all these other gifts, but will you give like the Macedonians? He's daring them. And friends, I've been around in town now for two years, and there are amazing signs of vitality here. I've been amazed at your generosity, at your charity, at how the gospel undergirds almost every conversation and undergirds conflict. And so there's a lot to celebrate, just as Paul celebrates the Corinthian church. But he's also daring us in town. Will you excel in giving? You excel in all of these things. You have these amazing gifts. Will you give like the Macedonian church. You're never supposed to tell a child or a spouse, you know, why aren't you like so-and-so? <laughs> why, husband, are you not like that husband? Why, child, are you not like that exceptional child? But Paul here is saying, look, Corinthian church, you need to be like so-and-so. You have all of these other gifts, but you need to give like the Macedonian church. Now, what does this look like? What does the Corinthian church have to live up to? What are the characteristics that are at play in the way that the Macedonians think about giving. There's three things that come up. I'm sure there's more that we could itemize, but three things. They were joyful, they were generous, and they were sacrificial. First of all, joyful. Verse 2, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. In the midst of severe trial, they had overflowing, overwhelming joy. Now, if you were like me growing up, when I was uh, a child, on December 24th, that night, I was on pins and needles, and I couldn't go to sleep. I knew that if I would go to sleep, then it would almost seem instantaneous that I would wake up and get to run downstairs, but I couldn't go to sleep. I would see, be calculating, okay, how long will it seem if I go to sleep right now? I was on pins and needles because I wanted to run downstairs and open up all of these gifts, all of these presents that my parents had given me. I couldn't wait to see and experience and see what they had given me. But now, every t- December 24th, when I, that I ha- now that I have kids, I'm on pins and needles for an entirely different reason. I know that when I go downstairs, there's very few presents there for me. Maybe Katie has thought to buy me something But there's not a whole lot of things for mom and dad downstairs. But I'm on pins and needles because I can't wait to see my kids run downstairs and open the gifts and see what I have sacrificed to give give them. 
Do you see the change there? Because I love my children. I want them to have joy. And I have joy as I see them ecstatic, as I see them elated, tearing into these presents that I've spent hours thinking about. I have great joy, more so than even when I open a present for myself. Now, that's not a commendation on me. That is just simply humanity. That is simply embedded in our humanity and the way that God has created you and I. And that's what, how the Bible talks about giving, that it is more blessed to, to give than to receive. It gives joy when you are able to lavish a gift on someone and see a smile when you're able to grant someone money that they don't have and it changes their life. It gives you great joy. What the Macedonians realized is that the deepest joy in the human existence comes not from the acquisition and the hoarding of wealth, but from divestiture, from saying, this is not mine to hoard, it is mine to give. And when the Macedonians were able to give, it gave them great joy. First of all, first characteristic of their giving was that it was joyful, overwhelming joy. Secondly, it's generous. How do you tell a generous person? How do you identify a generous person? Well, it says right here. It says entirely on their own in verse 3 and 4. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing. Now you see why Paul is sort of bragging about the Macedonians. You can see him sitting around the table with other pastors and saying, yeah, you guys have money problems. Look at my churches. I don't have to beg them at all. I don't even have to tell them about the gift. They plead with me to give. <laughs> they beg me for the privilege of giving. Paul, tell us where to send the money. They understand, understood that joy, that true joy is connected, and so they ask for opportunities to give. How do you identify a generous person? It's the person that looks for opportunities, that is creative in the divestiture of their resources, that goes around and says, how can I help? I have this resource. It may be money. It may be time. It may be emotional energy. It may be a spiritual gift. But the person who is generous with resources says, how can I serve? Where can I give? I have this that I don't need in order to be happy. Can I extend it to the happiness of someone else? That's a generous person. And this is why giving is such a vital part of Christian discipleship and of spirituality. Because in the act of giving, you are training yourself to think of others first. You're aligning yourself in a tangible way with Jesus and his mission and his way of life. You're mirroring his life, and that's the very essence of Christian spirituality. If you're here this morning, and maybe you don't have that sense of vitality in your Christian life, there's something missing. There's a lack of intimacy. There's a lack of joy. There's a lack of real vibrancy as you think about your relationship with Jesus. Well, there's a couple of ways you can go about tackling that and addressing that. You can pray more. And you can read your Bible more. Maybe find a friend to pray with, get a counselor, work through it that way. And all of those things are incredibly helpful. But one of the best ways to kickstart vitality in your life is to sacrifice. It's to give. Because in so doing, you are aligning yourself with Jesus. You are saying in a very concrete way, not an abstract way, I'm choosing to live sacrificially because Jesus lives sacrificially for me. That is the essence of spiritual maturity. And you can do that 
and get there more quickly when you simply choose to give in a concrete way, to sacrifice on behalf of another human being. That's generosity. It's also sacrificial. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about actual principles, proverbs, if you will, about how do we take these abstract principles, these spiritual imperatives to give and put them at play in our real lives? How do we take these out of uh, the esoteric realm and actually live them out? But here's a start. Their giving was sacrificial. Money gives us choices, and sacrificial giving limits those choices. When you got up and got dressed this morning, you probably awoke and went to your closet, and most of us here in this room, I don't know everyone, but most of us opened up a closet and had a number of things to wear. Most people around the world have maybe one set of clothes, maybe one set of nice clothes that they have you know, for a special event. But they wear the same clothes day in and day out. But you and I most likely opened up a closet with a lot of different choices. And what provided those choices is your money, your wealth, where you go to lunch today and what you order on the menu and how much you eat, what kind of food you eat, is derived by your money. Where you go on vacation this year, how many vacations you take, a lot of it has to do with money. Money gives you choices that other people don't have. And sacrificial giving, biblical giving, Macedonian giving, limits those choices. It says, I am choosing to have less choices for myself in order for someone else to have more choices. Now, many people look for a standard. Just tell me a percentage. Even if it's 10%, and that seems crazy, at least I know when I'm giving rightly. At least I know I'm being successful. But a standard is often just... A ploy. It's often just a standard for artificial righteousness, for artificial compliance. In the Old Testament, as the, in the passage that we read, uh, it talks about giving. And throughout the Old Testament, the standard was 10%, the first fruits. Before you spend it on anything else, you take 10% to the temple. But this was misused. This principle became more of a license for those that had great wealth to say, oh, well, I've given 10%, so I'm done. And it became kind of like a regressive tax. The poor were taxed more by 10% than the extraordinarily wealthy. And it became a standard by which people said, okay, I'm okay. I've done my duty, and I can use everything else for myself. In the New Testament, the 10% principle is replaced with passages that are more abstract to take a lot more thoughtfulness because basically what the New Testament says about giving is to live simply and give sacrificially. Now, translating that into our world, what this means is that if you commit to honoring Jesus with your money, then you'll give until it hurts. You'll give until you have less choices than you had when you had that money. You'll give until it pinches your lifestyle. A little bit. You won't enjoy all that you want to. You won't own everything that you want to. You won't have access to all the choices that you had before. But through that sacrifice, you will identify more fully with Jesus and his mission. You will come to know him more intimately. If you want to grow spiritually, give. And that's part of the reason we're doing this series. Not because we need your money, but because you need joy that comes as you untether yourself 
from your resources and from your money. And I need the very same thing. That's the example. Joyful, generous, and sacrificial. Look at your own giving. Is it Macedonian? Is it like that? Is it joyful, generous, and sacrificial? We'll talk more about principles as we go through, but those are some great guiding guidelines. An example and then a test. The test here that Paul lays down for the Corinthian church. What we see is that money is power. Money, as I said, gives us choices. It gives them, it's a measurement, not simply of our wealth, but of how much control we have over our lives and over our world, at least a perception. It gives us a right to choose what we want. It's a bulwark against the unknown. It gives us a sense of insurance against threats and against uh, uh, trial and so forth. And when we give up significant resources, we have less choices, less insurance, less ability to make tomorrow better than today. Than today. We're giving up a perception of control that we have over our world. It's a, money is a measurement of control and power, and this is why it's so seductive. In order to begin to unravel ourselves from being tethered and attached to money, to the love of money, to lessen its seductive power, we have to understand how the Bible talks about money. And what Paul is saying here is that money as an instrument is not evil. He is not chastising the Corinthian church or any of the churches for being well off. What he's saying is it is the love of money. In fact, he says to the, he wants the Jerusalem church to have more money. He wants them to grow in prosperity. So money as an instrument, money as a concept, is not evil in and of itself. But he knows the seductive power of money because of the apparent control that it offers. And any time we seek to control our world by accumulating wealth, what we see in the scriptures is that it, become, it begins to control us. And that's why Jesus talks about it so much. That's why it's here in this this passage. It's not simply to assuage poverty in Jerusalem. It's saying, do not be controlled by money. Let me set you free by by uh, holding out for you a sacrificial lifestyle. One of the uh, magazines that I read uh, without fail every month is Fast Company magazine. And I've never been in business. I don't intend to ever be in business. But the way that they talk about the economy, the way they talk about the American dream is always tremendously insightful. And they said in the magazine issue a few years back, at some level, most of us know that more is not only a promise, it's also a promissory note that lays claim over our time, our families, our energy, and get this, our hearts. This is just a non-religious business magazine. Money lays claim to your heart. Ultimately, there is no single answer to the question of how much is enough. Ceaseless striving is indelibly stamped into the American character. The American dream, an old engine that's been installed in the new economy, says that we can have it all. But the American reality whispers that when you do get it, you'll only want more. Or maybe you prefer the wisdom of the Simpsons. When Homer walks into Mr. Burns' office and he says to Mr. Burns, Mr. Burns, you're the richest man that I know. I thought about doing my Homer voice, but I didn't want to insult one of the greatest characters in TV history. Mr. Burns, you're the richest man that I know. Mr. Burns says, yes, but I would trade it all for a little more. 
Seeking to control our world through wealth accumulation puts a promissory note on our lives. And this is true, friends, for rich and poor and the middle class, because we all have, we all are, are subject to that seduction of money, whether we have it and we want more or whether we don't have it and we think that that's the key to happiness, that's the key to security. This passage falls in all of our laps, no matter how much wealth we have. In the very same way that you take out a loan to purchase something and then you make payments over time and you're tied to that loan, you're indebted to that particular note, in the very same way, when you believe that money is the key to happiness, that money can buy you security, you are taking out a loan, a promissory note on your own happiness, on your life, on your kids, on your work, on your stress, on your health. Because all of those things are tied up. All of those things are put in, in uh, hold for that promise. Money is an essential part of your and my spiritual health, giving that is. Money can be released to something that is very constructive or it can be released to something very destructive because money answers to something that is very deeply embedded in who you and I are and how we think about life and how we think about happiness. Paul could have easily laid down a command here. He could have easily said, look, I'm a, I'm a Jewish rabbi who's now become a Christian, and here's the way we used to do it. Here's the simple way, okay? We're going to all give 10%. Or maybe he could have made more of a progressive tax code and said, if you make above this amount, then you give this. If you make this amount, you give this. But here's the bare minimum. Everyone is going to give. I'm an apostle, and I'm telling you, when I come to Corinth, in a few weeks, I want this amount of money to be there. And you know what? It probably would have. And he would have been able to take that to Jerusalem, and he would have been able to meet that need. But he doesn't do that, although that would be the much simpler way to do it. What does he do instead? Instead of a command, he gives a test, because a test is much harder than a command. When he says, you're going to give out of the sincerity of your hearts, do you see what he's doing? He is taking a risk. Because if the Corinthian church doesn't love the gospel and doesn't love Jesus, they're not going to give squat. And the Jerusalem church is going to continue to be hungry and oppressed and poor. But he trusts the fact. He trusts what he has seen in the life of the Corinthian church. He says, you exceed in knowledge and faith and earnestness in love. So, of course, now apply that same gospel to giving. And he knows that when he does that, it's going to be much more prosperous. It's going to actually bring more money in, but also he loves the Corinthian church far too much just to simply tax them. He wants them to grow spiritually. He wants them to understand Jesus. He wants them to get the gospel for all of their lives. And they've got it in all of these places, but maybe not giving. So he wants to test the sincerity of, the, of their love. I'm not giving you a command. I'm testing you. I want to see if the gospel has really taken root or if all of this other stuff is just blather and activity. Because if the gospel has taken root, you will give in significant, sacrificial, generous, and joyful ways. He's taking a risk, but it's a pastoral risk. He's saying, Corinthian church, I believe you understand the gospel. I believe you get Jesus, so I'm not going to give you a bare minimum. I want you just to help these people. That's how he goes about discipling and pastoring this church. 
What does he say, verse 8? I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He's sneaky. (laughs) He's saying, look, If you get Jesus, if you understand that your Savior was born into a cattle trough, that he was born in a nowhere town and grew up in a nowhere town, doing a blue-collar job, he was poor, and then he died between two criminals. When you get that he became poor, that he gave up everything for you, then you will give. He's being very sneaky. Because he says, Jesus did all of that so that you can become adopted sons and daughters of the king. And when you understand that, that changes your relationship with money. It changes your relationship with the needs that other people have. You no longer are indifferent to them because your heart is not tied to your, to your possessions. Just like we saw in the study, that when you're, when you're money primed, you become indifferent to the needs of others. You just don't see, well, how, how am I involved in that? But when you get untied from resources as your ultimate goal, then you say, oh, okay, well, these resources are, I'm just a steward of these resources. I have been given them in order to help someone else. Or maybe let's put it more starkly as we conclude. You will always give effort, effortlessly to that which is your salvation. You will always give effortlessly to that which is your meaning to what is your meaning maker, to your ultimate source of significance, to your salvation. If Jesus is your salvation and him alone, then you will give abundantly, you will give creatively, you will give willingly and joyfully to his cause, his mission, and the people that are in need, because that's what he cared about. If he's your salvation, if he's your meaning maker, if he's your ultimate, then your money will flow effortlessly to him and to his people and to his needs. If, however, your real religion is your appearance, your social status, your job, if it's your comfort, if it's your pleasure, then your money will flow very easily to those things. It's very simple. Look at where your money is going. Look at what you are excited about when you write a check to it or you put the credit card in the plate. Where, what are you so excited about that you can't wait to spend money on it? Your money will flow most easily to the items and the things in your life that give you meaning. And that's why Paul says, I'm not commanding you, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love. Do you get it, friends? Do you get it, Corinthian church, that giving is the crux of the gospel? Look at what Jesus has done. Look at how he came into the world. Look at how he brought redemption. He gave of himself. That is at the very foundation of the gospel. When you begin to get that, when you begin to reinterpret your resources through that lens, you let go of them. You're untethered to them, from them, and you begin to give. The test is far more difficult, though, than the command. Maybe at least initially, a specific tax or levy would have generated more income. It would have gotten the Jerusalem church out of its poverty, at least for a time. But you know what? After that initial phase of guilt wore off, the Corinthian church would have stopped giving. 
Instead, he cares too much for them just to tax them. He wants them to give joyfully, generously, and sacrificially because they know the gospel, because they know Jesus. In-towners, what would it look like if we didn't have to consistently appeal, if we didn't have to put the budget numbers each week in the bulletin, if we didn't have to remind and send statements and so forth? And I, I put myself in this category as well because I'm often forgetful about giving. What would it be like, though, if we didn't have to worry, would we, would we make budget? If everyone creatively and generously and sacrificially gave of their resources until it hurt? You know, that would be great. <laughs> but what I'm more excited about as your pastor is how this would get in your life and that the, the gospel would become more of the root, more of your foundation, more of your ultimate significance and that that began to happen because all of us were giving sacrificially. I'm more excited about the spiritual growth that would happen within this community and within your and my individual lives as we begin to take Paul up on his dare, <laughs> as we begin to take Paul up on his challenge. Will you give like the Macedonians? Not because you have to, not because if you do, Jesus will love you more and everyone will be proud of you. No. Don't give because you have to. Give because of what Jesus has given you. Give fully of yourself, of everything that you have, because Jesus gave everything for you so that you could be set free. Let's take hold of that as we pray. Father, we pray for our church. We pray that we would be a church that lavishly gives to other people. It gives to needs within our congregation. It gives to needs outside. And that we would be a church that is known for its joy because we are not tethered, we are not strapped by our money. Father, set us free. And Lord, for those who are looking in from the outside, considering you, Lord, let them see how greatly you give, how much you give, how abundantly you allow yourself to be stripped of everything so that we can have everything. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.